Uh, I want to welcome those of you that are joining us online, nice and warm with your cup of hot chocolate. And I want to uh, welcome those of you that braved the frozen tundra of 610 uh, <laughs> to come up here and gather at the Stafford campus. My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here at the Mount, which explains why I'm allowed to wear a hoodie when I preach. <laughs> there you go. So I'm one of the student pastors here, and we're going to be coming out of 1 John chapter 4 as our primary text. But to be honest, we're going to be all over Scripture today, and we're going to start in a very odd place. We're going to start with a Super Bowl commercial that ran in 2019. So go ahead and take a look. What you don't know about your garage door will kill you. It's official. You can't eat wheat bread. Someone's, Someone's been, been stealing, stealing packages. packages. They call them porch pirates. Porch pirates. All I'm saying is that in five years, robots will be able to do your job, your job, Are you listening? Always, Denise. In a world full of fear. Simply safe. On. Home is the place you should simply feel safe. All right. So, I love that commercial. Because if you look at it, it's fear-based advertising, making fun of fear-based advertising, for the purpose of selling you a home security system. There is like irony on 15 different levels in that commercial. And my favorite two parts, the guy walks out, opening in the commercial, looks at the newspaper, and did you see the headline? Today is worse than yesterday. That could be the headline of every paper that's ever been written. Uh, another one, what you don't know about your garage door might kill you. That could be any advertising campaign ever. And so I love that it takes this satiristic look at fear-based advertising because fear-based advertising is the most often occurring advertising in our domain. Everybody is trying to sell us something. Everybody's using fear. It could be as simple as something like, hey, act fast. Don't want to miss out, which takes advantage of our fear of missing out, right? Supplies won't last forever, or it could be something more overt, like if you fail to do this, everything you love is now at risk. Well, I don't want everything I love to now be at risk. I need to buy this product. So fear-based advertising is pervasive because it works. We are biologically hardwired to respond to fear. It's called the fight or flight, right? We either run away or punch the thing in the face. But we don't do nothing. We are wired to respond to fear, so there's a sea of voices telling us what we should fear, not only for advertisements, but for ideas as well. We just came through an election campaign, and if you voted for the wrong candidate, your educational system was in peril. If you voted for the wrong candidate, then your life is in peril. If you voted for the wrong candidate, you might be literally ushering in the apocalypse. <laughs> you might be. Watch the ads. There is nothing worse in this world than voting for the wrong candidate. Watch the ads. But it's not just advertisers and companies and political agendas. We sell fear to each other as well. Ever heard this one? Son? you got to get good grades in elementary school. Why? Because you need to be prepared for middle school. And once you get to middle school, you better get good grades in middle school. Why? Because in high school, it's for real. It counts forever. 
There's nothing you can do to get that C minus off of your transcript. And you don't want that C minus, because if you get a C minus, you will not get into a good college. And if you don't get into a good college, you will not have a good future. Do you want that? Yeah, we don't want that for you either. So you better pass that fourth grade history test. <laughs> we, we laugh, but we did, that's a real thing. That is a real thing that we sell our kids. And anything that is said negatively like that can be said positively, right? Try your best. You can say that. But does that motivate people the way the other thing did? If you don't do this, your life amounts to nothing. So you better get on that right away. Because that's what's at the heart of selling fear, is if you do this, your life is better. If you fail to do this, your life is tragic. All the selling of fear is built to promote a behavior, depending on what that behavior is, depending on the message, but that's at the heart of every bit of fear-based advertising. I want you to do this, so I'm going to scare you into doing it, even if it might be for your own benefit. And this is it, hourly, we're sold that, hourly. We sell it to others, we sell it to ourselves in our own minds, why? Because it works. Fear is a great way of controlling behavior. But in this sea of fear-based voices, there is a voice that preaches the opposite. In this library of books that we call scripture, a very familiar refrain, a very common exhortation is, do not be afraid. Uh, reading throughout, because I wanted to kind of base how many, because I've heard that it says it 365 times. And then I've heard that because it says 365 times, that's God telling us that every day not to be afraid. Uh, that feels icky to me. That feels like a marketing strategy. That feels like a way to sell calendars. That, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like, man, we got the Christian bookstore, we got a really good idea for selling a calendar, so let's, let's just, nobody actually reads the whole Bible, so let's just say there's 365, like God forgot about leap day, and let's just sell these people these calendars. So I got to about 70, and then I stopped. Because after 70, I think we can establish that that's a pretty important refrain, right? Do we actually need it to be 365? I don't think we do. I think if it said it 30 times, that's pretty important. I stopped at about 70. And so we're gonna look at all 70 and you'll be, no, I'm just kidding. We're not gonna look at all 70. We're gonna look at about five or six, and I, I could have pulled this out, but we're gonna look at a common refrain in scripture. We're gonna look at a phrasing that occurs a lot more than the times that I am gonna show it to you today, and we're gonna start with the psalmist. Verse four in chapter 24, or chapter 23, very famous passage. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. The Psalms are a group of poems written by a variety of authors, and this occurs a lot in the Psalms. Even though this happens, I will not be afraid. Why? Because you are with me. But lest we say that's just literature, that's just a clever way of phrasing, we'll go to one of the prophets, Jeremiah. In chapter 40, 42, verse 11, he says, Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. 
Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. He tells his people, look, I know that king is bad. He commands the most powerful army. All he has to do is snap his fingers and his army moves against countries. He can literally redistrict borders. He can order you to be a slave. He can order your death or he can raise you up to heights that you never thought imaginable. I realize this guy basically controls your life. Don't be afraid of him. Why? For I am with you. Jesus says it as well. He's walking out on the water, which in and of itself is amazing, but he's walking out. Their wind is blowing, the ship is tilting, all kinds of things are happening around. The disciples see this ghostly figure walking out to him. They're afraid of the storm, they're afraid of this ghostly figure, and what does he say? Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. He says, don't look at the storm. Don't look at your superstitions. You don't have to be afraid. Why don't you have to be afraid? Because I'm here. Why does your three-year-old call out for you in a dark room? Because your presence makes the dark room less scary. The prophet Isaiah sums it up beautifully. 43, verse five. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. This is common throughout scripture. Don't be afraid because I am here. When you're walking in the worst jungle, when you're walking in the most dangerous jungle that exists, if you've got the baddest lion next to you, you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because ain't nothing coming up to you. Don't look at the jungle, look at the lion. That's where everybody else is looking. They don't want anything to do with you. And this occurs. I get Joshua 1, 9, Psalm 56. We could stay here forever looking at these lines that go, don't be afraid for I am with you. This is why I'm not a huge fan of this sales pitch. You need Jesus so you don't go to hell. While true, that is a fear-based sales tactic. And the lesser, you need Jesus because he's the greatest good that has ever existed. Much better sales pitch. Right? Because that love is what will tether us. Jesus says it like this. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't be afraid of other people. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He says, don't be afraid of the other people. Be afraid of me. And you might say that's contradictory, but let's read on. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? He's saying, aren't sparrows generally considered worthless? Like, doesn't your culture generally consider them very worthless? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He says, you don't gotta fear man. If you're gonna fear anything, fear me. But don't fear me, because I love you. You don't have to fear me. Because not even the sparrows die without me caring about them. I know the hairs on your head. You are worth so much more than sparrows. See, our problem, why we fear, is we've got our eyes focused on the wrong things. We've got our eyes focused on the kings that can move boundaries. We've got our eyes focused on the storms that are around us. 
We've got our eyes focused on the bad things that happen to us. We've got our eyes very often focused on what we lack, forgetting that what we have is the baddest lion in the jungle. The antidote to fear is to focus on who he is. Because if we can look right here, he's not a big fan of fear. That was just a few. Do not be afraid. Why? For I am with you. We have jabbed that point to death and we could stay here forever going through all those scriptures. But let's dig into 1 John. Where John writes, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out in the world. John clearly writes, not every voice gets to speak into your life. Not every voice gets to speak into your life. That's part of our problem right there. If 99 out of 100 voices are selling us fear, we have to be very selective about who we let speak into our lives because what goes into these ears gets in this brain and it matters. What you put into your mind matters. And he says, not everybody gets a voice. Not everybody gets a seat at the table. Choose that carefully. Here's some criterion for that choice. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now even already in the world. And I realized as I read that verse, the only word you heard was Antichrist. Because that's like a buzzword. It gets built down. And this is, this is actually why I, I like to preach line by line. Because left up to me, I just skip that. And we just skip over it. And you guys would have heard what I want you to hear out of Scripture. But instead, we're going to deal with it. Antichrist in that Scripture literally means against Christ. That's what it literally means. It's not talking about an apocalyptic figure that's going to ride in on horseback. Literally, it's talking about messages that are going out from sources that are not from Jesus Christ, preaching a message that is against him, saying things like, Jesus didn't really exist, or Jesus didn't come in the flesh, or you have a lot to fear. This is literally voices that are saying a message contrary to the one that Scripture has given us. And John says, don't listen to those voices. The first criterion for the voice you let in your life is, who does this person say Jesus is? If they agree that he's the Son of God and that he is who he says he is, now you can move to the next criterion. If they do not agree that Jesus is the Son of God, you can only expect messages contrary to him out of that person. That person does not get a seat at your table. That person does not get a voice in your mind. Why? Because they're not speaking the basic truth. He goes on. He says in the subsequent passage, you don't have to worry about them, though, because I'm greater. You don't have to worry about them because the one that is in you is greater than the one that has overcome the world. And then he gives an additional criterion and he says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God and knows God, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. He says these two statements are synonymous. I know God and I love others. He says you cannot have one without the other. 
That's what he says right there, right? Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves, who has been born of God and knows God, everyone that does not love does not know God, because God is love. So if we say we know God, if what comes out of our mouth is, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, I believe that Jesus is the risen Savior and the Son of God, what follows next is we love. He gives us that additional criterion. Watch what people say and watch what they do. I can say that Jesus is the risen Savior and still look to my own self-interest. But does that mean I know God? According to the scripture, no. Or I can say that I know God and I can bear that out through my actions showing that I truly do know God. Now, this is not just an invitation to measure others, this is an invitation to measure ourselves as well. Is what is coming out of your mouth consistent with your actions? If you say, I know God, according to John, certain things should follow that statement. You should love others as a result of experiencing his love. We preached an exhaustive message on this back on October 18th that gets into the nuances of love, so we won't belabor this point. But suffice it to say, we measure others by this standard and we measure ourselves by this standard. If what's coming out of my mouth says, I know God, then my feet should move, be moving in the same direction. Because John writes in his previous book, this is how they will know that you are mine, by the love you have for one another. He continues, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we see the progression. We see you say you know God, so you should act in love. Here's a concrete example of what love looks like. At great cost to himself, and at no benefit to himself, he leaves the perfection of heaven. He comes down here, is born in a major, grows in wisdom and maturity, and willingly walks to his own murder to pay for the wrong that you and I have done. He's nailed to a wooden cross, rises again three days later, and this is what God puts out as the standard of love. Lest we be fooled that it's something lesser. This is how God showed his love. We bring death, he brings life. He continues and says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we must also love one another. If we perceive that love, and if we understand that love, and if we get the benefit of God's great love, he's basically saying, there's no way you can't give that away. If you truly understand, if your eyes have been opened to the goodnesses of God, if your eyes have been opened to what your destiny was prior to knowing God, he says life comes through Jesus Christ. If you realize you were trapped in death with no way out, God comes, now you have eternal life. There is no way after perceiving that you can live a life not characterized by love. This is what he writes. He goes on and says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we show a loving God to a dark world. This is yours and mine's inheritance. 
This is how the people know that we are of God, because we show love sacrificially, sometimes at cost to us, just like it was at great cost to him. Sometimes love hurts. And this is the standard put before us. That's why John said, this is how you, they will know you are mine. Because you love like I love. Because you love sacrificially. Because you love difficultly. Because you love hard. And that's why people take notice, right? If it was easy, nobody takes notice of a layup. You're supposed to make layups. But when you make a 94-foot shot, it goes viral. Why? Significantly more difficult. Why will people look and go, that person must be of God? Because you're laying out the difficult love, loving sacrificially. If we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. That word complete could be more appropriately translated mature. And this will be important because that's when we know we're mature. Remember, I made a claim that the reason we are such a fearful people is we have our eyes on the wrong thing. When we mature, we put our eyes on the right thing. Once upon a time, I didn't eat too much candy because my father threatened to punish me. Right? That's why I didn't. I didn't take things from the store, not because I necessarily thought stealing was wrong. I was four years old. I didn't know what stealing was. I didn't take things from the store because I would get in trouble. As I became mature, I came to understand. I came to accept my father's values. That yes, 15 lollipops is more than enough. And no, I should not walk into people's stores and just take things because it's wrong. I matured. And as I matured, I came to understand my father's values. He continues, he says, this is how we know that we live in him and he is in us. He has given us his spirit. He says, we can make the statement that knowing God and loving others goes hand in hand because we have received the spirit of God. Because we are now the temple of the, the Holy One. This is what he says happens. You agree that God is who he says he is. You agree that Jesus is who he says he is. And now you receive the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. And this enables us to love. It enables us to speak truth. It enables us to hear the one voice in this world that is telling us, don't be afraid. It enables us to hear a message different than the one the world would like to sell us. And we have seen and testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So he says, hey, if you acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, and you have the Spirit of God, then you have the ability to love and show God to a dark world. And so this we know and rely on the love that God had for us. We're not constantly afraid. We're not constantly doubting. We're not constantly cowering. We rely on the love that God has for us. Rely on the love we have for God? Not so much. We rely on the love that God has for us because God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. He says, you, 
as a people who know God don't have to be afraid of God. Why? Because you know you are in him. How do you know you are in him? How do you know you have received the spirit? How can you approach the greatest being, the most powerful being, the being that scripture says is the only being worth being afraid of? How can you approach with confidence? How can you approach in love? The sacrificial love of Jesus, which is mirrored in your own life. Your sacrificial love is evidence that you know God. And because you know God, you no longer have anything to be afraid of. You can march towards your death, sad to be passing, but with no fear of meeting the afterlife. And not only in the life to come, but in this life as well, we no longer need to be afraid because we've been complete in Christ Jesus. He summarizes this passage by saying, there is no fear in love. We never have to worry about being abandoned by God. We never have to worry about being lost by, in God. We never have to worry about God turning his back or finding us unpleasing. We never have to worry about that. Why? Because there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Perfect right there, again, could be translated as mature. It clearly says in Scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning. That's where it starts. But it's made perfect once we no longer walk scared of who our God is, but knowing that we can rest in his great love. The reason we fear is we do not have an accurate representation in our minds of who God is. We think that because he gave us some commandments that we habitually break, that he's displeased and distant from us. And that is not the truth. We think because we experience hard times. We think because things aren't going our way that God has left us or abandoned us and we need to be afraid. But we forget the call to the original disciples was follow me. And then they followed him, homeless for three years, ultimately murdered on a cross, and most of them died as well. When hard times happen in our lives, it's not because God has abandoned us. It's largely because we are actually following him. And he has not abandoned us in those. He walked through them himself. We have an inaccurate representation of what a life with Christ should look like. And so the second it's not working out the way we think it should work out, bam, our eyes go back down on the problem and we are afraid. But I can think we can agree throughout all of scripture, God is vehemently opposed to his people being afraid. That the Christian life that we've been asked to live, the command behind follow me, is not led through fear because fear will keep you from taking the faith steps that draw you closer to God. We read about these heroes and heroines of scripture, Esther going to the king, even though she might die. Daniel going into the lion's den after prey, even though he might die. Guys going into burning furnaces, people being crucified upside down. And we think that is amazing. I could never do that. Not a true statement. We can do that. What enabled them to go into those things, what enabled David, uh, Daniel to bow down and pray, what enabled David to go face Goliath, what enabled Stephen to, to get rocks hurled at him before he died, was he was mature 
in his perception of God. He knew he was walking with the baddest lion in the jungle. He knew that not only could he be resting ashore for what was to come, but right here, right now, he need not be afraid of anything. Did it mean it wouldn't hurt? No. But it meant he had nothing to fear. Why is God so opposed to fear in the life of his children? It's because fear paralyzes us from taking the steps towards him. And he is vehemently opposed to anything that separates us from him. So when we look at these commands, do not be afraid, I would encourage us to take that command heartily, but look at the next part. Because do not fear is the lesser part of this formula. Do not fear for I am with you, for I am with you is the greater part of this formula. Focus on thee, for I am with you. When your interior monologue tells you you are alone, tell it, no, I am not. How? This is what we do with this knowledge. We test every voice that comes into our lives, those from outside and especially those from inside. We test them to see if they get a voice in our mind and we test them against scripture. One of the things we need to do as a people is look at those scriptures that I let out with and commit them to heart. A great one to start with is Psalm 56, three and four. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose name I praise, what can mortal man do to me? Start with those. And when those voices come in, you've got God's voice to get it back out. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose name I praise. For what can mortal man do to me? The implied answer, nothing. Fear for the Christian is a choice. It's a choice to take our eyes off the goodness that is God. It's a choice to take our eyes off the greatness that is God. It's a choice to look at what we lack instead of what we have. And when we live unafraid, we love like Jesus loved, and we show a living savior to a dying world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for being a faithful God and we thank you for being a loving God. We thank you that you give us ears to hear your truth and we thank you that you give us your word set up against any voice that speaks something contrary to your will. I ask right now for everyone who claims the name of Christ on the face of this earth to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep their eyes on the baddest lion in the jungle. That we would not be afraid, but we would be courageous. And a result of the courage that comes from knowing that you are with us, people would see who you are and come to a saving faith in you. Not because they're scared, but because they have perceived the goodness of the Savior that we call Jesus Christ. We ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit in your son's name, amen.